are the video team, Janet Parrott yeah. and JL Gatari. And I'm going to turn it over to them. So Janet, take it away. Hi, we have a... Is it gone again? Yeah, we have a... It's a touchy cable. Should I go get Courtney? No, no, we're fine now. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Janet Parrott. And um, I had the great pleasure of uh, traveling to uh, uh, England and France with Leslie and Mary. And um, uh, we interviewed MRD Foote and Noreen and, and uh, Tanya Zabo, and, and, and you have seen uh, bits of them already. And, and I think Mary has asked that we show a little bit of video. And so we're going to watch about 10 minutes of, of bits of interview to start off with. I can make this work. Violet Sabo, uh, who was awarded the George Cross, which was England's highest award available uh, to her, um, awarded by King George VI, um, was very gallant in SOE, Special uh, Operations Executive, and finally she was executed at Ravensbrück on direct orders from Himmler. The um, Lieutenant Governor of Jersey said something like, uh, she is an inspiration uh, to all of those young people today who are working in dangerous places. Violet and my grandfather, or her father, uh, had quite a heated um, relationship all over the years. She was with Fanny's and she was training and she was driving trucks and things. And uh, one day she came home and my grandfather was extremely cross and she explained that she wasn't involved in any naughty things and the fact that she had a sprained ankle was just because she got out of the truck in the wrong way and so it went on. And she got up in real anger at one point and stormed out as she dropped her bag. And uh, they picked everything up between them and off she went to her bedroom. And she was really, really upset, naturally, because here she was trying to do her best. She couldn't tell her grandfather what was happening. But then my grandfather sat and fumed in his chair until something twinkled at him from under the sofa. And it was her parachute badge. I shared a lot of um, confidences with departing agents. Um, well, because they could talk to nobody else. I remember one man, he was a Jew. He was a radio operator and he was going in for the second time. And I was with him the night before. There's nothing romantic about it. I mean, he was an old man. He was 35. <laughs> but um, for a Jew to go in, well, there were plenty of Jews who did go in. Uh, once was dangerous, but to go back twice was almost suicide. Well, this man had been in London, I think, when the war started. I think he was working in London. And all his family in, in Paris had been deported and died in concentration camp. He was totally alone in the world. And he took out of his pocket a little, a little um, velvet case. And out of it he drew uh, a Star of David with a Dove of Peace on a gold chain. 
And he said, I'd, I'd like you to have this. I said, oh, I couldn't possibly accept it. And he said, oh, please do, oh, please do. He said, I've nobody left in the world. He said, and I'd like to think that somebody remembered me, that somebody thought about me um, when I'm over there. So I said, all right, in that case, I'll take it and I'll keep it for you till you come back. I was wondering, was he saying, would you pray for me? Would you pray with me? I don't know. I'll never know, because he didn't come back. SOE, the Special Operations Executive, was a specially formed British Secret Service, formed in a tearing hurry in July 1940 and disbanded in January 1946 to foster sabotage and subversion in enemy-occupied countries. All through the war against Hitler and Hirohito, it had an extension in the Far East. It started off by mixing together three disparate bodies. A body called MIR, Military Intelligence Research, in the War Office, which consisted of a major and half a dozen of his friends working on methods of irregular warfare. A body sometimes called EH for where it worked, Electra House on the Embankment, and sometimes called CS after Sir Campbell Stewart who headed it, which was an unacknowledged branch of the Foreign Office, which worked on propaganda, and a section of the then utterly inadmissible Secret Intelligence Service, called Section D, also working on sabotage, subversion and propaganda. And the three of them were thrown together by a decision finally made by the Cabinet on the 22nd of July 1940 to form the Special Operations Executive. When they, they were recruited, and they were all volunteers, you know, they, um, nobody was forced. I don't know how they found them, but they literally were the cream of whatever country they represented. They were young, between 20 and 35, um, all volunteers. There was no, no, no special perks, no benefits to uh, belonging to SOE. They received exactly the same salary as people of their same um, rank who were uh, answering telephone calls or filing papers in a ministry. They knew, because they were told right from the beginning, that they had a 50% chance of coming back. And the um, radio operators in the beginning, their life expectancy was six weeks. It was the most dangerous job. Had Violette survived, what a grand old lady she would have been. What wonderful things we would have learned from her. Uh, she would have probably been as tough as old boots, and yet with a great deal of uh, remaining gaiety, that she would, uh, she would bounce back, in other words, regardless of what had been done to her. She would not remain the victim. So many did survive, and uh, did do exactly that, did not remain uh, the victim and got on with their lives. 
some of them very, very, very successfully. If you were going to be chosen to work at Wallis set, which a lot of women were, because women, women good knitters, make excellent Wallis operators, you were sent to a special course at Tame, east of Oxford, which lasted several weeks, where you were given very thorough training in how to make, if necessary, a Wallis set, how to operate it, and how to deal with your codes. Coding is a separate subject I won't now embark on. If you passed all that, you might then be prepared for a specific operation and dispatched on it, usually by parachute. Many people were, to start with, afraid to jump. Hurling oneself out of a moving aircraft is alarming enough. I find it exhilarating. <laughs> Tremendous fun. But not everybody did. And most courses started, I was lucky it was windy when it was my course in charge for this, I missed it. Most courses started with a stone-cold jump out of a stationary balloon. Perhaps a number of people looked down the ground and said, no, I'm not going to do this, and gave it up. If you gave it up, airborne forces had a rigid rule. You were sent straight back to whatever unit you came from and forbidden to serve in airborne forces for the rest of the war. SOE had a different rule. If at that stage you gave up, you were packed off to six months forestry work in the wilds of Scotland, just in case you said anything you shouldn't. Because SOE continued to maintain this dense veil of secrecy. Churchill is supposed to have said to Dalton their original interview, set Europe ablaze. Uh, after they were the recruiting stage, the initial stages, they were sent into what we call Group A. Everything was in code. Uh, which was at the north of Scotland, where, oh, they had terrible time there, you know, crawling about under barbed wire in the middle of the night in the pouring rain and, and climbing up ropes and being made to jump off. And uh, it was appalling, it was dreadful. Sometimes they were de <coughs> just decanted onto a Scottish moor in a mist and told to find their own way back and eat berries if they were hungry, you know. Mm -hmm. They also, I think while they were there, they learned ammunition training and also um, how to kill silently, which is quite, uh, quite uh, spectacular, and also how to fire, to shoot. The, the women were obliged to do all this as well. And then from there they went to Ringway, which was near Manchester, um, to do their parachute training. The training was six months. I mean, it was not a couple of days. It took six months. For a radio operator, it was very often eight months. And they ended up at what we call Group B, which was in Bewley in Hampshire, which was called the Finishing School for Secret Agents, where they were taught the finer arts of spying. It wasn't a, a rest cure. I mean, it was quite, uh, quite strenuous. They were, you know, they would have um, people banging on their doors at three o'clock in the morning, just when, you know, you were really in the depths of sleep. And if they shouted, come in, instead of entrée or uh, whatever language they were supposed to answer in. Well, that was a bad point. And um, then they would quite often be dragged out of bed, downstairs into a dark room, where there would be a desk with a whole lot of beauty officers all dressed up as Gestapo, sitting, and they'd have lights uh, into their eyes, and these men would fire questions at them like this, you know? 
Before they left, they were all given clothes made in France, and they would take off all their, their uniform, all their private effects, and they would put on their made in France clothes. And when it was beginning to get dark, or, you know, towards nightfall, Buck or Vera Atkins or one of them would come and go with them to the air, to the air, um, to the airport. It was either Tangmere or um, Tangmere or Tempsford. The Lysanders usually flew from Tangmere when they were actually going in to pick up an agent, and Tempsford was when they were being dropped because they flew then the big Wellington bombers or something like that. And they would go. They'd have a splendid dinner with lots to drink, not too much, but just to make them relaxed and happy. And then they would be taken to uh, a, a little hut where, you won't believe this, they would be searched in case they put, um, oh, I don't know, a cigarette end or a box of matches, an English matches or a, a bus ticket or something like that. And they even turned up the men's turnips, turned them inside out to make sure there was no London dust which could give them away. So, uh, as you can see, they were so generous about telling their stories and giving us information. It, it acted as, uh, let me stop this a minute. It acted as, uh, uh, you know, research for a lot of the script. And then uh, Mary and Leslie were saying, well, this is going to go into the show. And I kept thinking, how is this going to fit in the show visually? How am I going to make this happen? And um, so after a lot of discussion, uh, it's, it was really clear that you, you, it just can't be on a solid screen because it's, it's already in a different space. You have the, the world of the theater, the world of the play, and then you have this, which are these delightful interviews. And um, um, it, was, it was clear that being able to put this in a, in a different space, separating it a little bit, but allowing it to spill into the theater was important. And um, so we have this big screen <laughs> in front. And I thought, well, we can't have these big heads, you know, just it's sort of like the Wizard of Oz. It would be a little scary. And um, uh, so I started to look at it as a canvas that you could take these images, you can change the size, you can move them around. Um, I didn't have what's called B-roll. I didn't have a lot of supporting material. And I'm fascinated with words, um, with the words particularly in this. And I have to show you this slide. Um, this was a, a slide that Matt Hazard had taken some, uh, uh, someone in our department had taken photos during dress rehearsal, and he had grabbed this image. And, and this is just the words bleeding through to the back wall. And, you know, I love this happening. I've, I've used this uh, in, in theater performances before, but never with a back wall so close. And uh, Mary was able to do this beautiful lighting on, on the actors and the space that adds a whole nother level uh, of meaning to, to this footage. And the, the complicated part for me is the, this is not just visual, it's text. This is, this is script. And so figuring out how to manage this you know, into, into the script was a little challenging, but um, I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting with this other layer. 
And uh, we also decided that, you know, of course, once you hear any of these folks speak, you know their voice, you know who's speaking, so we don't need to see them again. And that was really helpful in some of our transitions. And again, it, it added that little bit of reality to uh, what we were seeing. Um, I also went to Knotzweiler and with, with Mary and Leslie, and uh, I had never really wanted to go to a concentration camp. And so, because I, I knew that, I know images get inside you and they don't go away. And so all I did was take a camera, I had a little, little camera, and I didn't want to shoot the big things. I wanted to shoot some of the little things. And uh, I was able to bring some of those visuals in. But let me move forward here. Uh, so on my computer, this is what this looks like. And I was trying to figure out, okay, the black is a cutout. What is this going to look like? So when we put it into the space, again, it gives you this double image. And the words and the pictures touch people. It lands on them. So with the actor being in the same space, again, it gives you this, this other level of meaning. Um, this is toward the end, and Leslie and I had this conversation about whether Sonia should be here, and she said, all the people in the symposium are going to know that Sonia shouldn't be in this group of people. Well, I also wanted Sonia to be rem remembered, and so I left her in uh, on purpose because um, this is at the very end. Uh, we have already heard Vera Atkins say, Sonia, uh, you know, is now one of my, I consider her one of my own, so I decided we need to remember her as well in that group of people. So Sonia is included in this group of women. Uh, well, I won't even talk about that because <laughs> I had her in there earlier and I took her out of that one, um, which made a whole lot of sense to do that. And so again, at the end, what's so powerful about this is, you know, with the lighting that Mary has on the inside of the boxes, we see the women um, isolated, and uh, there's Vera Atkins in the middle with all of her girls that never returned. Again, I think this is a very powerful image. Um, I didn't. I decided to use words visually I needed. I needed some support. Um, I also thought picking out just phrases or certain words, not really doing a verbatim uh, uh, transcription, but uh, just doing certain words that I thought supported the scene, supported the intent at that moment, was, was important. And I found Tanya to be really intriguing. She is, to me, always the daughter of Violette. And that's a huge part of her identity, I think. And um, we, spent, we spent a lot of time with her. <laughs> we had dinner with her one night, and then we spent all day with her. And she took us all over Jersey. It was a lot of fun. And she's this very interesting, uh, eccentric woman. Um, but still there's this identity of always being the daughter of, and she wanted her mother's book, um, I mean her mother's photo, the book that, that she wrote about her mother, you know, right next to her. She wanted that 
that was her addition to, to the setup of this interview. So she really wanted uh, Violette to be part of it. So Violette is in many ways a part of this uh, performance. What else do I have here? Um, Leslie, this came from the script. You gave me a, a script with information in it, and so um, it was nice I was able to actually take the visuals of the script and make them move around on the video. And again, the addition of marks. Um, I particularly like this moment in the show. It's very poignant, and for those who, who know Vera Lee, um, that's the video part and then we take it into the space and uh, I don't know about you but it just fe feels like the audience goes oh, when when you see the words saying that you know this trusted person your hairdresser you know denounced her uh, now now this is a piece of video from Knotsweiler and um, I was particularly taken and creeped out by uh, am I allowed to say kicked out in an academic environment? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, 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 about uh, this view, there are. Uh, this was in the in the crematorium, and there are several rooms, and they are basically cells. And there is a cell. There's the hallway, a doorway, and the cell. But from next to the doorway into the cell is a metal door, that leads to a metal box that's about this high. Uh, you could not stand up in it. And um, it, it's just a, this cubby with uh, one of the walls is uh, sheet metal with holes in it. And so it's a, you know, a punishment. So they put you in there and you can't get out, you're locked in, and all you can see is through these holes. And this is looking through the holes, into the cell, out the cell window to the outside. And so there's a line when uh, uh, Noreen is saying about agents being afraid for their families, afraid of torture and death. And this is the image that comes up. And that's what that image means for me on the stage. Even though it may not read to people, uh, that's not Swyler. Uh, and this is a case where I, 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 I like very much the words falling on to the actors. And again, it was a, it was a real challenge for me uh, conceptually to figure out before I was really in this space, how is it that, that the video is incorporated and becomes a part of something as opposed to the separate entity. And I think that, that instances like this with the choreography and the lights allowing these things to fall all over each other and be a little messy and touch each other uh, works really nicely. I'm also fascinated by close-ups. And that's something that you can do with video in a space uh, on the stage, is that you can actually have a close-up, you know, for the audience to see. So it's very cinematic in that way. And um, this is, again, from Knotsweiler. And there's a moment where there's a, you, you nor, uh, MRD foot says, Boulder Dash and there's a collage, and all of those images are just a couple frames here and there of um, images I collected from Knotsweiler. And so that becomes that. And 
it's only about four frames, but you see it. You know, as an audi audience member, you see it. And then uh, to sort of wrap up, this is all part of that uh, collage that happens very quickly. Uh, this photo's in that collage, and this is the actual crematorium. And uh, I did a lot of things while we were here, putting the camera down low and putting it on the ground and putting it in the hallway. And, you know, there's a door shutting. And again, these are all very quick images. That's actually a, a, a constructed image. That's what it looks like in the video before it's projected. You know, I have these kind of things, which again adds motion. This is walking across the street in Paris. <laughs> and that's not Swyler again. And this is a, uh, allowing, you know, for, the f for once, allowing foot and allowing these images to be, you know, the full frame. It's the only time, I mean, there, there's a couple times, but for, for the most part, everything is just pieces and parts in the frame. This is the full frame, so it covers everybody. And that's full frame. And there's more of the holes, and they move. Foam code. Uh, and then at the very end with Tanya, um, I visually love this moment of uh, the actors. They're interacting. I mean, it's really that moment where they really interact with the video. It's not just on them. They're a part of it at this point. And, uh, Tanya finishes up saying, you know, those families are in agony, and then the, the, the boxes get dropped one at a time, and I think that's a powerful moment. Oh, what else is here? I think that may be it. Oh, and this is just one of those things that you find when you're shooting video, and um, uh, this was Noreen. This is toward the very end, and she says, your war stays with you, and all over uh, people are remembered. And so this was a nice memory. Um, oh, I wanted to say one more thing. Um, so that's, that's what I'm going to say about, about the video. I wanted to say um, something about the parachute pin. You know, Tanya talks about that story of the parachute pin. When we were interviewing Noreen, she had her parachute pin on. It was very sweet. Um, but now I'd like to introduce uh, J.R. Gaultieri. He's um, uh, terrific. He's a student. He's graduating very soon. And um, he stepped up to the plate uh, and, and was sort of called upon at the last minute to do a lot of work on this project. And he did a great job. And um, he's going to share what, what he did. <coughs> Hello everyone. Uh, my name is J.R. Galtieri. I am <clears throat> in my fourth year here at Ohio State. I am studying a specialized program that's uh, focused on uh, lighting and video. Um, my involvement with this project began with uh, Mary Tarantino and Maria Palazzi's digital physical and lighting class, which uh, uh, Vita was talking about earlier, uh, where we sort of uh, prototyped things that were going to maybe appear in this production, maybe not, but it was just sort of a, a, a playtime for, you know, what could 
be possible in a production like this that's going to involve so many different elements and, and bring all these things together into one coherent performance. Um, uh, but before I get into any of that, uh, first I, I just want to say thank you to uh, everybody involved, you know, all the, the directors and the designers and uh, Janet, obviously, and everybody uh, as, as one of the only undergraduates who is participating in this project. I just feel really honored, and so I want to say thank you to everybody who allowed me to be a part of it. Um, and also, um, she's certainly not going to congratulate herself, uh, but Janet Parrott, <laughs> I think, uh, did an amazing job uh, providing a thread of coherence. You know, there are so many chefs in this particular kitchen, and, and uh, uh, I think Janet's work really brought every element together and, and provided a, a, a common thread throughout the whole production that really ties you know, so many different things together in a very nice way. So she did a wonderful job. <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, after, after our class was over, the touchy We spent uh, a little bit of the winter quarter. Um, I worked with uh, Mary Tarantino on some of the audiovisual tasks for the exhibit. And then when spring quarter rolled around, uh, I think ACAD uh, sort of realized that they had enough on their table and, and needed to delegate some other uh, video work. And I became the person to, to take on that video work. It was uh, quite a thrill for me. Um, one thing in particular, that uh, we needed to work on was this sequence in which they talk about the poem code and how this poem code works and how were we going to communicate something that was important to mention in the narrative but in incredibly complicated and how we were going to get that across in a couple of minutes you know obviously uh, we weren't trying to make code breakers out of our audience, but you know, we wanted to get this sense of here's what these people were doing, here's how it worked, how can we get this across quickly and, and efficiently, and you know, it wasn't going to work with just an actor explaining it, it had to have uh, some design, some visual element to it. Um, so I'll just go ahead and show you what we came up with for that. Okay, so we begin with just sort of a, uh, a chalkboard background, and uh, in the scene, Leo Marx talks about uh, he had identified some problems in the way that, that uh, these SOE agents were, were sending and receiving codes, and that they were using poems to generate number keys, but they were using poems by famous poets, um, things that could be recognized, patterns that could be recognized by the enemy. And so he took it upon himself to write his own poetry, um, and uh, that would be what was used to generate keys. Um, this poem in particular uh, is, is sort of famous, and I'd actually like to, I have that 
written up here. I think it's worth saying out loud because it's a, a lovely poem and a lovely sentiment and I think informed a lot of things about this production. Um, the life that I have is all that I have and the life that I have is yours. The love that I have of the life that I have is yours and yours and yours. A sleep I shall have, a rest I shall have, yet death will be but a pause. For the peace of my years and the long green grass will be yours and yours and yours. Uh, I think it would have been really wonderful to have been able to include this whole poem in the sequence, uh, but it was adding another layer of complexity to something that was already sort of complex. In essence, what was happening with these poem codes was that uh, the the agents were instructed to use certain words in the poem to generate their code. Um, so that was something we felt like we can leave that part out. It's maybe confusing. And so we just decided to go with the first two lines from this poem. And so from here what happens is uh, you go in alphabetical order, you pick out the first letter of the alphabet, A, and wherever the first A shows up in this poem, that becomes your number one. The second A becomes number two. Third A becomes number three, four, five. There's no B, there's no C, there's no D, so you move on to E. The first E becomes your number six, seven, eight, and so on, and you continue this pattern until you have a number key. And at this point, you're done with your poem. Now you have this number key. This is what you use to encode your messages. So they're using these poems to get these keys uh, once they had the key, the poem was no longer necessary. From then what happened is uh, you needed to send a message. So in this case, for this play, we used these famous words, set Europe ablaze, says Churchill. And so to, to send this message as a code, we use our number code from our poem in this case, 24 is the first letter in our key. And so we go and we find the 24th letter in our message, which is, in this case, the second C in Churchill. That C then becomes the first letter of our encoded message. The next would be the 11th letter, which is the B the sixth letter, which is the R, and so on, until we've gotten this. And so, you know, the folks back home, when they receive this jumble, they know what poem code you have, they know what key you have, and so to trace it back, they're going to look at, at this key, and they're going to try and find the one. And they're going to say, okay, number one is the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, tenth letter in our encoded message. So we go back to our code. Sorry. And 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yes. And so that's how that worked, and that's how uh, they transmitted this back and forth. Um, and of course, we, we, I don't want to say dumbed it down because I don't think we were treating our audience as dumb. We just had to communicate something complicated really quickly. So uh, uh, for lack of a better term, yes, we dumbed it down. There were uh, other layers of, of complexity in this code. Um, and uh, uh, Leslie Ferris and her husband helped me a lot in, in putting this together. My process in, in doing this was, was having to figure out the code for myself you know, going from having no understanding to being able to to actually do this. And so what I learned from that, I was able to take and put it into the graphical elements, um, you know, to make it simple enough that I understood it, I was able to, uh, to use what I figured out from that to try and help other people understand it. Um, from there, we do a very little set Europe ablaze. And I think that was a powerful moment in the production. And then we had a, a interesting interlude where um, my scene continues. There's a, a little interview with one of the agents and then we pick back up with the training. The next part of the training is about Morse code. And uh, there were little bits of, of animation that needed to happen with that, but not so much about communication is more about just a, a visual flair and you know something happening on that lovely back wall. Um, <clears throat> nobody asked me to do this, but I took it upon myself. Uh, uh, one of my uh, artistic heroes, it's a man by the name of Oscar Fischinger. Um, some of you might be familiar with his work from uh, Disney's Fantasia. He uh, did some work on that. Um, did a lot of his work in uh, Germany during the uh, Weimar years and uh, once the uh, Nazi Socialist Party came to power and started to crack down on abstract artists he was more or less chased out of Germany, not allowed to do his art anymore. Um, so uh, in this scene Leo Marx explains that Morse code needs to be sent rhythmically and to further illustrate that point, he breaks out into song, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Um, and so I, I saw an opportunity here to pay homage to a, a particular hero of mine in a way that would be consistent with, with both the energy of, of the song, the piece, and, and uh, the story in and of itself, in that you know, here's a, a man who inspired me greatly, whose, whose life whose artistic life was was very, very much disrupted by uh, World War II. And uh, he did end up coming over to America and, and working for, uh, he worked for Paramount, MGM, Disney. Not a lot of success with any of them. Um, bad luck. <laughs> bad luck, uh, uh, you know, just poor circumstances and I think um, an unwillingness to to compromise his vision of what his art was and uh, subject it to what Hollywood thought it should be. Um, and perhaps if if the events in Germany had never happened, he would have gone a different route. Um, <laughs> you're going to have to touch it. <laughs> touch the 
And we're back. So uh, I wanted to show a little, a little bit of his work. Uh, one of his more famous pieces. This one is called Allegretto. I guess I'm not going to show that. <laughs> so uh, instead, I'll show you my best approximation of his work. And this is what was included in the production. Um, this was my homage to uh, my hero, done for the camouflage project. pieces of, of video work that, that uh, I was asked to do for this project and they're all super fun and enjoyable and stuff I really like to do and uh, I think uh, Janet and I made a really great team uh, for our responsibilities where where you know where I didn't know something she did and where you know vice versa we were able to help each other out a lot and, and come together and make this thing happen and uh, it was a really great experience. Thank you. Okay, we have time for questions, and I have one. <laughs> now, I just wanted, JR, for you to explain that when you did the, um, that animation that we just saw, you did um, very much focus on the timing of the singing and the actors. So, can you just say a bit about how you worked, how you did that? Uh, that was something that. I want to go back to the mic. That was something that was in direct reference to to Oscar Fischinger because his his whole style was very much about uh, kinetic synesthetic animation using uh, bold shapes and colors and and this is a sort of uh, motion to try and visualize music as closely as possible. I really wish I could show you uh, his work, but actually um, it would make mine look pretty bad. So <laughs> it's okay. Um, but yeah, uh, that that was just a process of of, of using the software and and um, you know setting a lot of a lot of uh, points where you know here's where this word happens, so here's where this movement needs to happen, or here's where this 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 series of notes happens, so this animation needs to happen over this amount of time. So it was just. Uh, 
A lot of very careful orchestration, a lot of very careful uh, you know, moving things around, just, you know, milliseconds to the left or to the right and, and making sure that everything lined up as nicely as possible. But I thought, um, you know, for that number, uh, it, it needed to be something very, very closely aligned with the music and with the dance and the performance in general. that or uh, it might have been Leslie um, there were interestingly enough a, a, a couple of references to other parts of the production in that animation and uh, it was not conscious um, <laughs> I wish I could say it was but uh, there's another point are we off again um, there's another point in this here where uh, I feel like there's sort of a representation of the four cells that the the women end up in at the end of the of the play and again didn't think about it but once I saw it uh, you know I thought well maybe maybe I did <laughs> you know maybe that's it's I think you know creation and, and analysis are, are two different processes and and so you know you create something you don't quite know what's going to come out or what it's going to be and you'd like to think that, that these things happen you know, uh, with some synchronicity. So to answer your question, no. <laughs> you know, one thing that JR did is uh, when we saw the, uh, the, the little bits of Morse code, if anybody reads Morse code, it actually says, set your ablaze. I mean, that's the, the nice attention to detail that JR does in his work. There, there, there was a story that 
there was a story that Foote talked about, and then um, Tanya talked about, you know, in a completely different perspectives, and that was, you know, that's sort of an interesting thing when you start to put that together. Yeah, she was, she was four. How could Which you tell some people kind of remember yeah. conversations? Right. Which, right. Either they were too young to remember, or you can't remember conversations mm -hmm. years after. But it's the way in which it's repackaged as truth, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, history. Yeah. Yeah, when you talk about these, uh, the idea that titles are semi subtitles, mm -hmm. where they come from, it's kind of a theatrical idea that sounds really in advance. It seems like it's going to be tacky and unnecessary, and it work really great. Oh, where did it come from? Um, uh, it came from uh, not having enough B-roll. Uh, uh, you know, there every time the every time the picture moves, it's really because I cut out audio. Um, these these stories are long and sorted and wonderful and rich, and but we only have so much time, so I, I really had to, to cut them up. And just like the, the bits that you saw before, you know, there's, it's all jump cuts. And that's not even very tight. Well, this would have been a lot of jump cuts, so I had to figure out how to, how to sort that out. And for me, words just seemed logical because the language of the time and, and, and of, uh, of the situation was intriguing to me. And just when you say, you know, 13 never came back, when you see that, her hairdresser denounced her. Those are really powerful moments, and right. so it, it just worked for me. I don't know. I mean, other than that, I, I really have. Uh, part of it was was um, it needed to be that text. I thought we needed to understand that. If we didn't understand him yeah. or her, uh, if we didn't understand the spoken, we at least could see it. Um, and then the other was just a simple, practical, divine thing. I thought it was interesting, and I needed it as a transition. And I was so impressed uh, by the interplay of all those things. I mean, maybe 30 years ago, we couldn't do layers in design. It was too difficult. Right. And with Photoshop, uh, which is not animated, we, we can do the most remarkable things now. And as I watched this, uh, I began to imagine, oh my god, we could bring in animation and film and music and rhythm. Um, and, and then I thought, well, how can I take this further? And one of the things that I wonder technically is, what, what is the screen made of? And I assume it's some kind of mesh that's almost like the resolution on a computer screen. And then the other thing I thought was, I wonder if it's possible not to have the screen always in front of all the characters, but to have them, let's say, in a midpoint, so that you now have the complication of real, physical, unscreened actors in the front and actors in the back of the yeah. screen so that you can start to do that. We, we actually talked about uh, a, a lot of that. For a long time, there was this idea of a screen in the middle, yeah. and, and um, but then, you know, that box is kind of small. <laughs> it became technical, and in terms of projectors have to be at a certain distance, and um, there's not enough room to do rear projection, and um, you know, to get a to get a size a sizable image, you have to have a, a certain distance and so once you start hanging things and you notice there were projectors hung inside uh, of that the, the cube um, but once you start getting those inside then your image gets smaller 
and um, it just kind of didn't, I mean, there were already like nine projectors in the show, and there was kind of like not enough, and not enough sources, and uh, you know, it, it became sort of technically difficult to figure out, but absolutely, I mean, I'm very interested in having lots of layers of images, and you know, things just little bits of screens coming down, and only allowing parts of, of projections to be seen. All of those are possibilities. And we just had to make choices, which was not always easy. Oh, and the screen is, um, Mary can talk about it a little, little bit. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a theatrical scrim, but it is tougher simply so it can roll up and roll down. It's more durable. Yeah, it's the choice. Does it come in different opacities? Yes, right? opacities, colors. We we mocked up and demoed many just to make sure that the video was what what was appropriate and desired. Yeah, I mean you 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 can see it, it was important to see through it. You know enough to see the image. It was okay if the image was not you know crisp like on a big television. Um, it was more important to see through it. Something I wanted to add with your point is that this. A year ago, in, in spring, we explored these possibilities over at ACAD, where Vita and uh, my class with the um, MFA actors, we got together and we worked with what it was like to have actors in front of and be behind to play the feasibility of it. And we loved it. It was very effective. It really just came down to how many screens can we have? How, we, how are they going to run? So who's doing the mechanics? But that question that was asked. And it's a huge amount of media files to manage, you know, for a system to sort of play back and, and manage all of those streams. Yeah. Something else I wanted to add with JR's work with the code, with his, his projection of the code, not only was it very helpful and added to the environment of the scene, but it really helped us understand <laughs> the coding, and especially for the actor who played Neil Marks. It really wasn't, I think, I honestly think it wasn't until he saw your projection that he really started to understand what he was saying. So, I, I heard an audience member from one of the performances uh, uh, out the next letter of the code. <laughs> <laughs> that to me said everything like, yes, you did your job. <laughs> <laughs>